Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 10, Episode 9, The Pax Hideyoshi. Although we have been largely focused on Toyotomi Hideyoshi's prowess on the battlefield and political arena, he absolutely deserves credit for transforming Japan's economy into the shape it would take for hundreds of years after he was gone. While Oda Nobunaga's contributions to said economy was easing free trade and nurturing a growing class of moneylenders, Hideyoshi's large-scale reforms would completely change the way land was managed, how fiefs were understood, and how entire clans organized themselves. Before we dive straight into the thrilling world of medieval macroeconomics, I think it will be helpful to discuss Toyotomi Hideyoshi the man, that is, his personal style, tendencies in leadership, and general demeanor. Although he had reached the absolute apex of political optics by being named Kampaku, Hideyoshi was said to have little patience for formalities and rituals of politeness. He was known to be very friendly toward both peers and subordinates, and in spite of his command over the largest military in Japan's history thus far, he was always eager to resolve quarrels without resorting to bloodshed. If things came to blows, he tried to ensure that his soldiers' lives were not wasted, and when enemies offered surrender, he usually accepted their submission without further punishment. In 1583, shortly after the Battle of Shizugatake, Hideyoshi initiated the very beginnings of his most important reforms by ordering a national land survey. The purpose of such surveys was to evaluate the production capacity of villages, districts, and provinces so that their taxes could be properly assessed. Hideyoshi was certainly not the first daimyo to orchestrate a survey of their own lands, which had been taking place on a small scale since at least 1530, and even Nobunaga had initiated a survey specific to the land held for income of the great temples of Nara and Yamato provinces. What made Hideyoshi's survey different was the scale. This was meant to be a long-term project whose end result would be a reliable understanding of productive capacity nationwide. The political objective of this project was, broadly speaking, accountability. A clan whose fiefs produced less than what the official register indicated would need to offer a good explanation for their shortfall. This increased accountability from the official managers of those lands meant a trickle-down effect of increased accountability of the farmers themselves, as well as the other subjects under a clan's governance. As you may recall, the peasantry of this period had, in many places, enjoyed a degree of prosperity and independence which any population would hate to lose. In fact, there was a significant resistance to this survey in many quarters which resulted in the bribing of survey officials, gross acts of land fraud, and more than a few cases of farmers outright absconding from the land they had been cultivating. Gradually, however, the effort to determine productivity and tax it accordingly was generally successful. The land survey which began in 1583 was completed in 1598. While we may laud Hideyoshi for his broad reforms and his skill at unifying the nation, he and Nobunaga were not terribly different in their rather reactionary outlook. 
Both valued a generally conservative status quo of absolute samurai supremacy over the lives of peasants and commoners, whether they were farmers, artisans, or merchants. Both stringently resisted the egalitarian Iko Iki, and Hideyoshi's banning of Christian missionaries and later related restrictions was also partly based on the perception that Christian subjects were disobedient to their superiors. In addition to the layer of accountability provided by the land survey, Toyotomi Hideyoshi also announced a nationwide sword hunt in 1588. Throughout Sengoku Jidai, the lines between samurai and commoner had become blurred. This process arguably began much earlier with the Nambokucho War, when both sides eagerly recruited anyone with weapons to fight on their behalf over more than 50 years. The latter half of the Muromachi period was defined, in part, by frequent peasant uprisings in which whole villages and sometimes whole provinces would take up arms against the warrior ruling class. Hideyoshi's sword hunt was exactly what it sounds like, a seizure of weapons from the classes who were no longer allowed to carry them. Villages, districts, and cities were searched for hidden arms, which were confiscated if the bearer was not officially a samurai or an ashigaru. Suits of armor were also seized, and in a somewhat ironic gesture of political symbolism, the metal therein melted down and reforged into nails and clamps, which would be used in the construction of a new daibutsu, a massive Buddha statue. Of course, not all the weapons were found, and some villages successfully concealed rather large caches of arms and armor, which they could use in a pinch for self-defense. In 1590, the final vestiges of resistance to Hideyoshi in Kanto were squashed. We will discuss the ensuing campaign in the following episode, but for our purposes right now, just know that unification was roughly completed in 1590. This was hailed as a watershed year by Hideyoshi's government, and soon afterward he issued an edict which forbade any village migration after 1590, and ordered any newcomers to any village to be expelled and forced to return to their homes. The primary target of this edict was the ever-growing class of masterless samurai known as ronin. The wandering ronin is a trope that most of you will probably be somewhat familiar with. Hideyoshi's fear with these landless warriors was that they might turn to banditry or, worse in the minds of the government, gather en masse in some distant province and stage a large-scale rebellion. Forcing them to stay in their home villages at least prevented such collective action. Former methods of land management focused largely on the size of various private estates and domains, but the strength of Hideyoshi's survey system was the focus on productive output. One daimyo in Kyushu might have thousands of hectares of total land, while another in Kanto may have a much smaller domain. What essentially mattered to the central government was the amount of food which each was capable of producing, which might be a much higher number for the smaller but more fertile Kanto domain than it was for the large but mountainous one in Kyushu. Although his political style was vastly different than Nobunaga's, Hideyoshi certainly followed in his former master's footsteps when it came to building projects. While we've already discussed the construction of Osaka Castle on the former site of the Ishiyama Fortress, 
Hideyoshi had also ordered construction of a grand palace called Jurakudai in 1586 to celebrate his appointment as Kampaku regent. It took almost two years to complete and was nearly as large as the imperial palace itself, but when it was finished in 1588, shortly after the conclusion of his campaign in Kyushu, he invited leaning daimyo from around the nation to enjoy the emperor's presence and to show their support for the new Kampaku. At this five-day gathering, the daimyo were asked to sign a written oath in which they promised to prevent the unlawful confiscation of imperial estates and that they would obey the commands of the Kampaku down to the smallest detail. Tokugawa Ieyasu and Oda Nobukatsu were the primary targets of this oath, and I have no doubt that Hideyoshi rejoiced when they both affixed their signatures. However, the wealthy and powerful were not the only ones to enjoy the celebrations of the conquest of Kyushu. In 1587, public notice boards were erected in Kyoto, Sakai, and Osaka, inviting everyone who read them, regardless of social class or status, to an open-air tea party at the Kitano Tenmangu Shrine in the capital. Attendees were instructed to bring a sitting mat and a teacup, and enjoyed ten days of music, no plays, displays of treasure, and of course, delicious tea. While this celebration, later dubbed the Grand Kitano Tea Ceremony, was certainly the largest and most magnificent of Hideyoshi's public celebrations, it was far from being a lone event. Whenever a building was completed or a milestone achieved, public celebrations were initiated and enjoyed by people of all ranks and classes. In 1592, another celebration was held after the completion of a castle near Kyoto on a mountain called Momoyama, or Peach Mountain. While today its reconstructed version is most often called Fushimi Castle, the name Momoyama represents the second part of this period's moniker, the Azuch Momoyama period. Shortly after being made Kampaku, Hideyoshi established an administrative body called Gobugyo, which means five commissioners. All five of these commissioners were drawn from the ranks of rural samurai of modest holdings in Omi and Owari provinces. They had each been former Nobunaga supporters who had likewise supported Hideyoshi after Nobunaga's death. Maida Genii, a retired samurai who had taken Buddhist vows as a monk, was named to an office roughly equivalent to magistrate judge for the capital. Natsuka Masaye, who was especially gifted in mathematics, was placed in charge of national finance. Mashida Nagamori was placed in charge of public works. Asano Nagamasa was placed in charge of the land survey, which is arguably the most important position of them all. Lastly, appointed to the role of police chief for both the capital and Sakai, a job with considerable economic and trade considerations, was a man named Ishida Mitsunari. In addition to his work on trade and finance, Mitsunari would also be one of the primary leaders of the sword hunt which began in 1588. The Gobu-gyo were not an empowered administrative council, but more of an organ for enacting the will of Toyotomi Hideyoshi. Representing him in his provinces, somewhat similar to the Shugo of previous shogunates, were a group called the Daikan, or deputies. The Daikon only administered the provinces which Hideyoshi directly governed, however, and were not placed throughout the nation in the same manner as the aforementioned Shugo. 
However, part of their duties were explicitly to keep an eye on neighboring daimyo and alert the central government to any funny business. One glaring omission from both Nobunaga and Hideyoshi's reign was the lack of clarity on legal matters. You may recall that the Kamakura shogunate promulgated the Joe Shikimoku Law Code in the early 1200s, which was used for many years after as the basis for shogunate law. Neither Nobunaga nor Hideyoshi seem to have been of a legal type of mind, and both governed through their edicts and proclamations purely in a situational, reactionary manner. While Nobunaga had attempted to bring an end to the barter system and introduce mandatory copper coinage nationwide, it was not until Hideyoshi's time at the helm that these reforms were made effective. The new coins, which included silver and gold versions, were broadly called Tensho coins because they were minted during the Tensho imperial era. Gold and silver mining reached new productive heights during the Azuch Momoyama period because of the development of new smelting techniques, as well as a general scramble by powerful daimyo to maximize the productive potential of the land they controlled. Many daimyo, and especially Hideyoshi, kept large caches of gold and silver bullion, which they would employ for larger transactions. To a greater extent than Nobunaga before him, Hideyoshi made effective use of the imperial court to both maintain the establishment of his own right to rule and for the symbolic maneuver of acting on their behalf. He did maintain good relations with Emperor Ogimachi and, after his ascension in 1586, Emperor Goyose, as well as many other nobles and court attendants. The days of an imperial court seeking to restore the emperor to a position of secular power were long over by this point, and the sovereign and his counselors contented themselves with governing spiritual matters instead, and signing any edicts that Hideyoshi sent their way. Still, there is evidence that Hideyoshi did genuinely respect the court, and certainly held it in high esteem as an indispensable symbol. He resigned from the office of Kampaku in 1592, passing the title to his nephew Toyotomi Hidetsugu. He was thereafter known as the Taiko, or Retired Regent, the title by which he is most commonly referred to today. He wrote down some advice for Hidetsugu regarding the expectations of the office, and he explicitly advised him to serve the Tenno with great care. On the religious front, Hideyoshi cleverly played good cop to Nobunaga's mass murder cop. Because the Ikko, Iki, and other troublesome religious orders had been more or less suppressed by Nobunaga's aggressive militant actions, they did not pose a threat to Hideyoshi's supremacy. Although he would occasionally take punitive action against a monastery if he discovered some of their monks fighting on behalf of his enemies, the days of large-scale burning and pillaging of religious complexes had mostly come to an end. Once more, we must observe the power of the nationwide land survey and how it shifted the relationship between the long-established religious orders and the secular powers of Japan. During the land survey, Hideyoshi ordered a lot of monasterial land, that is, land whose incomes funded monastic establishments, confiscated by the state. As the land survey continued and as the various major temples were forced to acknowledge their own weakness vis-a-vis the Grand Regent, Hideyoshi was happy to return much of that land, or equivalent land in other locales, 
to the relevant schools and orders. As long as they asked nicely, of course. Regarding Hideyoshi's personal religious beliefs, historians are largely left to speculate while being given very few clues to the man's inner heart. He carried some manner of small charm and visited shrines to pray for his family, but how much of this was symbolic posturing and how much was genuine passion is up for debate. He did order the building of a massive Daibutsu image, but such state-sponsored Buddhist construction was hardly a new innovation of Hideyoshi. He respected the established religious orders as long as they set militant training aside and stuck to their prayers, lectures, and sutras. More interesting is his relationship with Christianity. It may surprise you to hear that before 1587, Hideyoshi's relationship to foreign missionaries was generally positive. He frequently invited Jesuits to dine and have tea with him, and we've previously discussed how one of his top retainers, Takayama Shigetomo, adhered to the Roman Catholic faith. Prior to the expulsion edict, Hideyoshi had never given any indication that he disliked Christianity, nor did he forbid any of his retainers and vassals from embracing this foreign faith. Precisely what triggered this radical nativist edict is not known for certain. Naturally, like the motivations of Akech Mitsuhide, this has led to almost no end of harebrained hypotheses, most of which have little to no evidence. What makes this decision even more perplexing is that Hideyoshi had already granted Christian missionaries special privileges which allowed their activities to spread more effectively. They built seminaries along with churches and were training young Japanese converts to build churches of their own. Hideyoshi even hinted that he might make Japan a fully Christian nation if the Jesuits would help him procure some well-equipped Portuguese warships which he could use for his next endeavor, which we will discuss in more detail a few episodes from now. It was only a few hours after inspecting one of these ships, seemingly with approval, that Hideyoshi dispatched a message to one of the Jesuit leaders informing him that he would soon banish the missionaries from Japan and clamp down on the converts left behind. The full edict was announced on July 25th of 1587, but the actual departure of the Jesuit fathers would wait until ships arrived to remove them. Even then, with the leaders largely cooperating, somewhere around a hundred chose to go into hiding in Kyushu. They were kept hidden largely through bribery, and for the moment, Hideyoshi's edict was not enforced to the letter. Interestingly enough, the expulsion edict of 1587 did not forbid Japanese subjects from believing in Christianity if they so chose. It did forbid regional daimyo who had accepted the faith from forcing their subjects to likewise convert, casting religion as a private matter in which each should follow their hearts. In 1590, Hideyoshi agreed to receive a delegation from the Viceroy of the Indies, which would include four Japanese Christians who had departed Kyushu in 1582. The Japanese group is referred to as the Tensho Embassy, and they were sent from three Christian daimyos of Kyushu on a voyage to Rome. During this initial two-year voyage, they visited many Portuguese colonial holdings including Madagascar, Goa, Macau, and Kochi. They came to Spain, then traveled onward to Rome, where they enjoyed an audience with Pope Gregory XIII, the most important of the Gregories, as he commissioned the Gregorian calendar. Although they had been converts to Christianity already, 
Throughout the course of their voyage, they all expressed a desire to bring Roman Catholicism to Japan, took vows as priests, and were inducted into the Society of Jesus, making the four of them the first Japanese Jesuits. They spent a few years visiting different cities throughout Italy, Spain, and Portugal before finally embarking for their home country in 1586. They arrived in Goa in 1587 and soon learned of the expulsion edict, which, no doubt, would make their return more difficult. In 1591, they returned to Japan as part of the official embassy from Goa. Hideyoshi received them courteously, but the leaders of the mission were warned not to ask for the expulsion edict to be rescinded, nor for their previous privileges to be restored. Still, Christianity itself was not, for the moment, outlawed as a belief, only the power structure which the missionaries represented. That being said, Hideyoshi and his relevant officials certainly turned a blind eye to the continued efforts of Jesuits secretly hiding in countryside villages and spreading their faith to Japanese converts. Had Hideyoshi intended to further extend his control over his subjects, persecutions may have proceeded in earnest. However, in 1592 he was far too preoccupied with another distant horizon for which he had spent the preceding years preparing. That particular adventure is, once again, still a few episodes away. Regarding his family, Hideyoshi's later years were not great for many of his relatives. I mentioned previously that he had no natural heir with his first wife, and at first he opted to adopt several promising candidates with the hope that in time one of them would stand out. Included among these candidates was the fourth son of Nobunaga, who after his adoption was known as Hashiba Hidekatsu. After the Battle of Shizugatake, the three nieces of Nobunaga were given to Hideyoshi, although their mother Oichi chose to die with her husband Shibata Katsuie. The youngest of these was called Chacha, though after she came of age she was known as Yodo Dono, or Lady Yodo. Hideyoshi brought Lady Yodo into his household as a concubine shortly after the Battle of Shizugatake. In 1586, Hashiba Hidekatsu, Nobunaga's fourth son whom Hideyoshi had adopted, died of a sudden illness. It is still something of an open question whether or not the young man was poisoned by Hideyoshi's orders. In 1589, Lady Yodo gave birth to a son named Tsurumatsu. This sudden appearance of a natural heir called into question the legitimacy of the other potential candidates whom Hideyoshi had been grooming as potential claimants. One young adoptee, Hashiba Hideyasu, who served ably as an officer in the Kyushu campaign, was married to the Yuki clan of Shimosa province, and changed his name to Yuki afterward, inheriting their domain in Kanto as he had been handily removed from inheriting anything of Hideyoshi's. Other such arrangements were made to remove potential rival claimants to young Tsurumatsu, but the boy died very young, which is part of why Hideyoshi once more invested political resources into grooming his nephew Hidetsugu as his heir. Toyotomi Hidetsugu was fortunate enough to be named as Kampaku when Hideyoshi retired and became the Taiko in 1592. He seemed to enjoy his uncle's favor and even took up residence in the Jurakudai Palace since it was the official residence of the sitting regent. In 1593, however, Everything changed when Lady Yodo once again gave birth to a son. Hideyoshi sought to have Hidetsugu removed as regent, and thus avoid a potential succession crisis in the future. 
the relationship between uncle and nephew became strained and rapidly deteriorated. In 1595, Hideyoshi accused Hidetsugu of planning a coup against him. There were also rumors at the time that he was abusing his position and committing murder left and right. Modern historians generally dismiss these rumors as fantasy as they lack any evidence. It seems possible, however, that Hideyoshi was likely the originator of these horrific stories and arranged for them to be spread so that the charges of treason would be publicly acceptable and he could rid his son of a rival claimant. Hidetsugu was found guilty in spite of a complete lack of evidence and ordered to report to Mount Koya to commit seppuku. He died on July 15, 1595. Unfortunately, the misfortunes for the rest of Hidetsugu's family and household did not end there. Some of his attendants had followed him to the monastery and committed ritual suicide with him, but those who did not were brutally executed back in the capital, including Hidetsugu's entire family, children and all. In a particularly cruel maneuver, Hideyoshi extended the execution order to include a 15-year-old concubine of Hidetsugu's from the Mogami clan who had just arrived in the capital and had never actually met her groom-to-be. The Mogami clan was incensed by this action, and many daimyo nationwide were horrified at the general cruelty of the whole affair. Hidetsugu was the last remaining adult male of the Toyotomi family apart from Hideyoshi himself. When the Taiko passed away in 1598, the actions he took in life would have dire consequences for his descendants. Jurakudai Palace was also largely dismantled in the ensuing years, much of its lumber being repurposed for the construction of Momoyama Castle. A few of the buildings from it were spared, however, and some still stand in Kyoto today. In spite of the paranoid cruelty of his later years, Hideyoshi's innovations would define Japan for hundreds of years, especially his abstract approach to land, defining it by its output rather than its square footage. When Hideyoshi died, his successor would find the nation very much intact, under control, and relatively easy to manage. Nobunaga's conquest of 30 provinces throughout central Japan was a remarkable feat that took 20 years to accomplish. In less than 10 years, Hideyoshi would bring the rest of the nation under his control and complete the process of unification. Next time, we will explore the further military campaigns behind that unification as Hideyoshi brings Kanto under his control. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. Thank you.